Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. We have this week, this last week, in the story of David and 2 Samuel. Next week, we'll be turning briefly to the New Testament, to a passage from the Apostle Paul that speaks of the Incarnation, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul says. And then I will be on vacation for a week, and we will come back and dive back into David, hoping to finish up 2 Samuel right before our missions conference in mid-February. And if you're wondering what we will be doing after that, I'll break the spoiler alert to you now. We'll be in the Gospel of John for probably about three years. Uh, with some intervening other ser uh, series, but John is an awfully long book, so I'm very much looking forward to that. But now, we have David the King, and we will be looking at 2 Samuel 19, beginning in the middle of verse 8. Verse 8 breaks between two paragraphs, and going through till verse 40. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Amen. 2 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not the commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord the king hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. 
Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day the king came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then? To cry to the king. And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided, you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now Brazilii the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, eighty years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good. You. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, Lord there is none like you. You are the only true living God. You are the only Savior of your people. Lord we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That even as we study it, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we long to know Him better. We long to be in His presence. But we love Him, for He is a great and mighty God. This we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Perhaps more than anyone in the Old Testament, David is a picture or a type of Christ. David is the great king of Israel, but his son is greater. David shows us glimpses of Jesus, but in a way that shows us that Jesus is greater than David. David's life was filled with imperfections and loss. And that reminds us that we need a perfect Savior. But it also reminds us that our King is returning and that He will set all things right. Do you long for the coming of Jesus and His kingdom? Then let's look at a shadow, a picture and be encouraged while we wait. The first picture that we get of King David is as the unifying king. David is the king who unifies the kingdom of Israel after the civil war. Now, we have seen the war with Absalom. We've seen betrayal of David, David having to flee. And there being great concern that the kingdom of Israel would not even survive. So what is next? The hard part, we may think, is over. Absalom has been defeated. But how can the kingdom be put back together again? You might think of that old children's nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty. David certainly has men, and he certainly has horses, but we wonder, can they put the kingdom back together again? Is it scattered, broken, in shards forever? The greater part of the kingdom had actually rebelled against David. Could they be trusted and brought back into the fold? Could they be reunited with the loyalists who had fought and died for David? At this point, all Israel had fled home. The war was over, but David needs to win the peace. And so the people here are at a loss what to do. We see this at the beginning of our text in verses 9 and 10. There is a controversy. There, there is an argument, so to speak, between them. There had been divisions before when Israel was under the rule of Ishbosheth, And then Judah was the base of Absalom's support. And so now the people wonder, who are we for? On the one hand, David was the king who delivered us from the Philistines. But on the other hand, we were for Absalom. We anointed him. And now Absalom is dead. There's no hope there anymore. But how, they ask, how can we make things right with David? Now we, I think, can identify with this. Not because of the politics or because we've served in an army, but in terms of our relationship with the king. As sinners, we have offended the Lord. We know we deserve punishment. Yet, we want to be reconciled with the king. 
we know He can deliver us and He can protect us from all our enemies. But how do we bring about that reconciliation? We can't. The bad news is we are not able to fix our problem ourselves. That's what had the Israelites in such a quandary. They don't know how to make a resolution to the problem that they have caused. Now, David hears what is going on. And it makes sense that this problem has come right before him. He knows that there are broken loyalties. He knows also that he must reunite the kingdom to go forward. And so he sends a message off to his tribe, the tribe of Judah, through his friends, the priests. Now, this is a very delicate business. And so he chooses Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, who are among David's most loyal men and the most respected in the kingdom. They are priests. Because there is a tension between David and Judah. Judah had gone over to Absalom. You may remember that Absalom was proclaimed king in Hebron, which is in Judah. Judah was the first to flock to his banner. And now there is a potential for further tension because by taking this action, David can be seen as favoring the tribe of Judah over all of the other tribes. We're going to see something about that in the next chapter. Well, David makes his appeal to Judah as a way to reestablish his rule. And it is a three-pronged appeal in verses 11, 12, and 13. In verse 11, he begins by appealing to their sense of pride. He says to them, Judah, you're the largest tribe. You're the most important tribe. Then why are you last to come and welcome the king back? Why are you letting all of these other tribes get in front of you? Shouldn't you be first? He is egging them on to get behind him, to be in the forefront to be the trendsetter. And then in verse 12, David can appeal to the close relationship that he has with them. That is his tribe. He says, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. If anyone should support me, you should. And then finally, he does something a bit odd in verse 13. He says, say to Amasa, you are going to be the commander of my army. Now, at first glance, this makes absolutely no sense. Why would David make the enemy's commander-in-chief his own commander? Well, there's two things, I think, going on here that we can see. First, you would do that if you meant to punish Joab for killing your son. You're saying you can't trust Joab anymore. But I think there's a second thing going on here. By reaching out, by offering an olive branch... David is telling all of Judah and indeed all of Israel that the struggle is over, that there are going to be no reprisals, that you don't need to be afraid that we're going to come back to one nation. Just stop for a moment and think what our country would be like if anyone took the effort to reach out in peace and friendship to someone on the other side. That's what David's doing here. He wants to put the struggle behind him. And so in one swoop, David recognizes the need of the people and he relieves their fears. 
And so he begins to win their hearts over again and brings them back to himself, we read in verse 14. As one man they come back. This is the old David magic. He calls the people and they flock back to him. Now this is such a contrast to what we would expect in David's day. Normally, the king would not spare the rebels. He would punish them all. He would have no mercy. He would put them to death. But this king is not like other kings. He reaches out to the guilty. He restores what is broken. He doesn't ask. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He initiates. He acts. And he does this in a way that symbolizes forgiveness and grace. Do you notice in verse 15, Judah comes to Gilgal. Gilgal is so named, it means the rolling place. And it's because at Gilgal, Joshua gathered the Israelites and they renewed the covenant and God told them that he had rolled away the reproach of Israel at Gilgal. Everything that was a reproach, everything that was wrong about Egypt, God rolled it off of them and gave them a new start. Isn't that what grace is all about? Grace doesn't look back and say, well, but remember what you did. But you've got to be on your best behavior because before. No. Grace makes new. That's what David's doing here. Isn't that how King Jesus acts toward his people? Instead of handing out justice, he shows mercy and grace. He is the one who holds the kingdom together. Do you trust him? Or are, worry, are you worried that you need to fix your life and you need to fix the world? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has the matter safe in his hands. The second picture that we get of David is as the merciful king. And we come now to a series of scenes as David journeys back to Jerusalem. In one sense, they are the counterpart to the scenes we saw as he was leaving Jerusalem. You will remember, as he was leaving, there were several groups that came to him and interacted with him. Now, two people whom we have probably been wondering about since then are reappearing. Shimei and Mephibosheth. And in these scenes, we get a glimpse of David, the merciful king. The merciful king who first pardons the guilty. First comes Shimei. You remember him, right? This was the guy who cursed David and threw rocks at him. He was so glad that David was fleeing and he told him so. And he also told David that all of his problems were his own fault because he was a man of blood. At the time, remember Abishai had begged David to allow him to go and put Shimei's head on a pole. But David said, no, leave him be. There's no other way to say it. Shimei is a snake. He is a wicked and hateful man. And he told David that he hated him. Now he comes with a change of mind. Notice that he is first in line to meet David as he comes back. 
Shimei is not going to wait. He wants David to know that he's first. And he comes with a visible show of why David should accept him. In verse 17 we read that Shimei comes with a thousand men from Benjamin. And he goes and falls down before David in verse 18. And does the only thing that he can do. He confesses his sin. Shimei is past the point of explaining why he cursed and threw things at David. He can't say simply, mistakes were made. Or, you didn't understand really what I was saying, David. No, everyone understood exactly where Shimei was. All he can do, the only thing that's left for him, is to confess his sin. And to throw himself on the mercy of the king. Now, there's nothing in the text that really shows Shimei has had a true change of heart. He committed treason, and that did not work out so well for him. But he did know that he had done wrong. And he knew his only hope was to admit that and to plead for mercy. And so Abishai comes to David again. It's like Abishai is a one-note Johnny. I've got the solution, king. Let me take off Shimei's head. I'll put it in a bucket. You can carry it around. That's the perfect thing here. This time, it makes sense. Shimei's guilty. The law calls for that punishment. Why should David show mercy on an obviously guilty man? But David responds in almost the exact same words that he did before. You see that in verse 22? What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be this day as an adversary to me? Now, why does David respond this way? Before, David thought that God was talking to him through Shimei, reminding David of his sin. But why spare Shimei now, when he is obviously guilty and he admits as much? For David here, the reality of the kingdom intervenes. He knows that if he kills Shimei, everyone will be afraid of reprisals. And that will make it much harder to unify the kingdom. Shimei is coming to David out of self-interest, but David is also acting out of self-interest. He wants to unify the kingdom. Well, what then does this have to do with you and me? Isn't it a picture, even if it's hidden by some shadows, of how King Jesus deals with us? You may not think that you are as much of a snake as Shimei, but don't you stand guilty before the Lord? If you think about all the things you thought, said, and did just yesterday, don't you see that you're a sinner? Guilty as charged? And does Jesus turn you away? Does he give you the justice that you deserve? No, he shows mercy. And more than that, Jesus is the king who goes out and seeks sinners like you and me. We should never talk about having a ministry that is seeker-sensitive, by which we mean ourselves and others. No, the one who seeks is Jesus. He is the one who goes out. Do you remember the story of one Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus was on the road to murder Christians. He didn't even have a Shimei apology in his pocket. 
And yet Jesus went and met him and changed him. And the world was never the same again. Well, the next person to come to David is Mephibosheth. And so we have the merciful king not only pardoning the guilty, but hearing the meek. Do you remember Mephibosheth? He's the lame son of Jonathan that David showed covenant kindness to. You remember that on the day of the battle of the Mount of Gilboa, when Saul and Jonathan were killed, Mephibosheth was in the arms of a nurse, and she was so shocked by the news, and they were all running out of town, that she dropped him and he became lame, unable to walk properly. He couldn't care for himself. But he was also the grandson of Saul. He should have been the enemy that David destroyed to establish his kingdom. Yet David protected him and cared for him. You may also remember David thinking about Mephibosheth as David left Jerusalem. Back in chapter 16, Ziba showed up on a donkey with supplies for David. Now remember the donkey. Ziba shows up with a donkey, and David asks, Where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he with you? Why isn't he fleeing? And Ziba told David that Mephibosheth was joining Absalom to bring back the kingdom of Saul. And at the time, you'll recall, we said, that makes no sense at all. Why would Absalom help lame Mephibosheth set up a Saulite kingdom? And we didn't really trust Ziba at the time. But David was on the run, he needed help, and he didn't have time to investigate. Now Mephibosheth comes back on the scene, and he is a wreck. You know, <clears throat> the Old Testament has an interesting way of making its points sometimes. Mephibosheth says what we suspected. Zeba was lying. He says, I wanted to go, but Zeba took the donkey, the only animal I had that I could ride on, he took it and left town, and I was left, I couldn't follow. You know I can't walk, king. I was unable. And the testimony that Mephibosheth has that this is the truth is the way he looks. He's a mess. Do you see how he's described? His feet are not taken care of. Now, I'll spare you the lurid explanation of that, but it's basically he hasn't trimmed his toenails in however long David's been on the run. And when you wear sandals and don't have socks and shoes, that's not exactly very nice. And he also hasn't trimmed his mustache or his beard, so it's probably in knots and hanging. And You know what it's like, guys, when you let yourself go a little long, you go camping for a week and you try to rough it and you don't bring a razor. Even if you already have a beard, you realize when you get back, you've got to trim the beard because it's a mess. And then, the text tells us that he hadn't washed his clothes. So David might not have known that Mephibosheth was coming, but he could smell him coming from a good distance away. Now, what does all that mean? Why kind of the, the stomach-upsetting description? It's because if Mephibosheth were really trying to establish a kingdom, if he were really on Absalom's side, he would be wearing royal purple rolls, and he would be perfectly coiffed and perfectly trimmed, and everyone would have been serving him. He looks more like an Old Testament mourner after someone has died. 
That's what we get from this. So what does David do now? He's already given the lands to Ziba. And Ziba is a liar. But Ziba was also a crucial help to him during his flight. So David is pragmatic here. He splits the land between them. He doesn't want to punish Mephibosheth. But he also doesn't want to lose the support of Ziba. Now we can learn from Mephibosheth's reaction. Do you see it in verse 30? He is so glad to see the king returned that he says, give it all to Ziba. I don't need anything else. As long as I have my king, I have everything. David's judgment provided Mephibosheth with an opportunity to show that it was not the gifts of the king that were important, but it was the king that mattered. Does this incident speak to you? If the Lord took away from you all of his gifts, your money, your health, your job, but instead he brought you a clear sense of his love and his presence, would you still rejoice? Our temptation is to focus on the gift and not the giver. Remember that it is the king who is important. The king is the one you need. Well, the last scene is a scene with our old man, Barzillai. And in it we see David as the rewarding king. The last time we saw Barzillai, he met David and brought him and his men provisions. And we read now that Barzillai actually supported David and his men while they were at Mahanim. We see this in verse 32. And that means that Barzillai is a wealthy man. We could have guessed it, but we're told that explicitly. He is a very wealthy man. He basically housed fed and resourced David and his army. But he's not a glamorous man. He's 80 years old. And he's a very aged man. The way the text speaks of him, you almost can hear him creak as he walks up to David. But do you see that his age had not made him apathetic about the kingdom of God? It can be a temptation for those of us who are older not to care much about what is happening in the kingdom of God. We excuse it away. We say, well, you know, we're not going to experience it. I won't be here in 30 years to see what the church is like. I don't have to be concerned about our gospel witness 50 years from now because I won't be around. But not Barzillai. He took a risk and paid a cost for supporting David at this time. Barzillai served the king in the way that he could. He was not a strong warrior who could fight for David. He was not a powerful orator or politician who could get people to join David. What he was, was a farmer. A wealthy farmer. A simple man, but with means. What he had was wealth that the Lord had given to him. And he used that wealth for the sake of the kingdom. Now you may be wondering here today how you can serve the kingdom. You may not even think about serving the kingdom through giving. 
You might just assume that giving is something you should do because, well, you ought to. But Barzillai can show you something more. You are a steward of everything you have. It all comes from the Lord. And the Lord has given it to you for a reason. To care for you. To provide for your family. But also to build the kingdom. I often tell men, not everyone needs to be a pastor to serve the Lord. Some men are gifted by God to be businessmen, engineers, hard workers. The Lord uses them to fund His kingdom. Not because He has to, but because He chooses to. He uses you to send missionaries with the gospel, to provide pastors to preach and teach, to provide Bibles and books for discipleship. Don't forget that you can serve the king through your wealth and means. Well, David wants to reward Barzillai for all his loyalty and service, and he says, you provided for me, now let me provide for you, in verse 33. He says, I don't want you to worry anymore, and I want to be able to bless you. And so in a rather longish speech, verses 35 through 37, Barzillai basically says, thanks, but no thanks. He says, it's not that I don't appreciate the offer. It's not that I don't appreciate you. But I'm just not at a stage of life where I can enjoy the perks of the court. Good food, wine, and entertainment. Now, I have to confess to you that I can appreciate some of this. Some of you who are older than I am can appreciate it maybe even more. I can't eat as much food as I used to. I have to be more moderated in how I enjoy life or I pay for it the next day. Often, I get more pleasure out of watching my grown children enjoy things or watching young people enjoy things. And so that's what Barzillai expresses. That's what he suggests. He says, take my son Chimham with you. And David says, whatever you want. I will do it, in verse 38. I'll take Chimham with me, and I'll shower my blessings on him. David kept his promise. We know this from Scripture. 400 years later, the prophet Jeremiah will speak of a place near Bethlehem called Geruth Chimham, roughly translated, Hospitality. To Chimham. It's the place that David gave Barzillai's son. Near his hometown. Because David kept his promise. And that is a picture of how King Jesus blesses us. He doesn't owe us anything for our service. Unlike David, he does not need our resources or our help. But he does delight in rewarding us even when we do not deserve it. Look at verse 36. Can you say with Barzillai, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Do you see that in your life? It's a reminder that you belong to the king. This is yet one more chapter in the life 
of King David. Have you ever wondered why there is so much of his life and story in the Bible? More really than anyone else. We have the details of his life over many, many years. Some of those details are good, some bad, some downright awful. But in those details, we see a sketch. A pencil drawing, if you will, of the greater king. David's life points us to Jesus. Remember that. It's here to help you to see your Savior. It is not a coincidence that the birth narrative in the very first gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. We should always be looking for Jesus. Let's pray.